Okay, welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 142, Oswiu and Oswin. There's no Anglo-Saxon word for take backsies. So, when we left off, Chenwall of Wessex had left his wife, and irritated Penda, since his wife was Penda's sister, and he gained a fancy new wife, but lost his kingdom when Penda arrived to have a little chat with him. So he did what many nobles at the time seemed to like to do. He fled into exile. In the case of Chenwall, and presumably his wife, he legged it to the kingdom of East Anglia and to the court of King Anna. Now you might remember what King Penda had done earlier to East Anglia. He got into a scuffle with King Egric, and it was bad enough that they brought old King Sigebert out of retirement to fight in the field. And in the end, Egric and Sigebert both lay dead. And as a consequence, East Anglia had a new king, and that king was King Anna. And you can't help but wonder what the hell King Anna was thinking by granting sanctuary to Chenwall of Wessex. Penda had already killed two of his predecessors, and those weren't the only kings he killed in Britain. And now he was chasing the very man that Anna welcomed into his court. The only thing I can think of is that maybe he thought that because he was the father-in-law to the king of Kent... Ericumbert, that maybe through his Kentish and possible Frankish allies, he'd have some degree of wiggle room. But even then, this seems a bit like needlessly poking the bear, especially since it seems like all of these ruling families were already intertwined through marriages, and that hadn't stopped them from fighting each other yet. But whatever his reasoning, King Anna granted guest rights to Chenwall, and then he lived in East Anglia for three years. And during that time, and according to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, it was about a year into his exile, pagan King Chenwall converted to Christianity. And that's becoming a common theme with this story. Aedfrith, Oswiu, Oswald, Sigebert, and now Chenwall had all converted while in exile. And I know I keep banging this drum, but this really is a fascinating thing that's happening here. You have a culture that is pretty heavily focused upon the warrior aristocracy, And you have a king that worships warrior gods and is doing very well in the field of battle. And yet, rather than kings converting to his gods, they're converting to the gods that were worshipped by three out of the four kings that he'd killed. Naturally, there's a tremendous amount of factors that go into conversion. And the choices that people make regarding religion go well beyond who is winning battles. But I do find that dichotomy to be a rather interesting part of this period in time. So anyways... This brings us to about 648, and something quite important happened right about here. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle might have begun making contemporary records right about now. So at least for a little bit, it's possible that scribes might have been writing about things that were actually happening at the time, rather than trying to chronologically fit things roughly into the right point in time, which many scholars believe is what the scribes were doing until around this point. Sort of like... Oh, what happened in 527? Uh, well, we know that Churditch was fighting at around that point, so let's just fill in that line with one of his fights. Well, the thought is that that sort of dating might have stopped, at least for a little while, right around this point in time. And the reason for that notion is that dating suddenly got much more precise. So, hooray for possible accuracy. Also, hooray for the spread of literacy. 
Yeah, it's slow going, but it was progressing. And this was before reading Rainbow, so I think they were doing pretty well, all things considered. Alright, so after three years in exile, in 648, Chenwall was back in control of Wessex. We aren't told how he managed to pull that off, nor do we know what Penda thought about it, but he hit the ground running, and apparently gave a massive chunk of land near Ashdown to Cuthred, son of Quichelm. And yeah, that's the Quichelm who tried to assassinate Edwin. So not only was the line of Churdich back in control of Wessex, but they were also handing out enormous land grants to fellow dynasty members. We're talking about 3,000 hides of land, to be exact. And a hide of land is enough land necessary to support a household. So Cuthred got enough land to support 3,000 households. That is an enormous grant of power and wealth. And Ashdown was right at the heart of the homeland of the West Saxons. So this was serious business. Consequently, it was pretty exciting for Cuthred. And it wasn't just Cuthred who was getting exciting new real estate opportunities. King Anna of East Anglia was giving us a good example of how useful dynastic marriages could be. Now, Anna had quite a few daughters, and one of them was married to the king of Kent. But he married another of his daughters, a lady by the name of Aethelthrith, to Tonbert, who was a prince of a Fens group known as South Gearway. And, as was becoming common with the time, it looks like when Aethelthrith went to her new household, she brought with her her priest, Owen. And this was great news for King Anna, and also for East Anglia in general, because this union brought that region under East Anglian control. So East Anglia was expanding. Now, King Anna wasn't just interested in the acquisition of land and arranging marriages for his daughters. He was also taking part in the other major pastime of the era, supporting the church. And the king was particularly fond of one specific monastery, Nob Harrisburg. Isn't that a great name? Well, thanks to King Anna's patronage, Nobs Harrisburg, and seriously, that's a real name, I'm not having a stroke, was benefiting enormously in both religious buildings as well as material goods. And that did not go unnoticed by Anna's neighbors to the west, the Mercians. And King Anna might as well have said, Hey Penda, if you're still angry at me about giving your former brother-in-law sanctuary, here's where you should hit me. Because by putting all that effort and treasure into one location, he really did give Penda one hell of a target. And King Penda obliged him in 651. Though it appears that word of Penda's invasion traveled fast. Or maybe advance warning was given, like some sort of honorable combat situation. Because whatever the case, King Anna had enough time to muster up his forces and lay a defense against King Penda's attack on Nobs Harrisburg. And that provided the monks enough time to escape with their tomes, their valuables, and their lives. However, this is Penda we're talking about. So while the monks might have escaped, it wasn't in Penda's nature to lose in battle. And this was no exception. King Anna and his warbands only served to slow down the Mercian attack. And the East Angles were broken. And King Anna was forced to flee into exile possibly seeking refuge in the kingdom of the Meganseta. So he was probably regretting things quite a bit at that point in time. Now, we aren't given details on what Penda did following his victory, but the silence suggests that, unlike Cadwathlin, he probably didn't exact any sort of vengeance upon the peasantry following Anna's retreat. 
I wonder if he just grabbed whatever wasn't nailed down at Nobbs Harrisburg, and you knew I had to say that at least once more, didn't you? And then probably just hoofed it back to Mercia. So things in the south are getting kind of interesting. Meanwhile, up in the north, things are going exactly like you would expect them to go. Exciting, and a bit dangerous. So first, we have Ainflade. As you might remember from earlier, Ainflade was the daughter of Edwin, and the girl who was apparently born on that fateful Easter when Edwin dodged an assassination. Well, Ainflade had married Oswiu of Bernicia, and the two of them had four children, Egfrith, Aelfwina, Osfrith, and Aelflade. So that's pretty good news for their dynastic claim on the north. King Oswiu's line had strong claims on the whole of Northumbria, and there were multiple children who would now inherit those claims. This is all good news for the line of Ida. But King Oswiu wasn't done yet. The fact of the matter is that his rival, King Oswin of Deira, had a great deal of moral authority and even the support of St. Aidan, and we're told that he was beloved by all men, and that, quote, men of the highest rank came from almost all provinces to serve him, end quote. That's problematic, no matter how many kids you have with Edwin's daughter. Sure, you might have a claim, but King Oswin was related to Edwin, and he was looking a hell of a lot like the revered King Oswald. So while Bede notes that King Oswin ruled Deira with, quote, wonderful piety and devotion, end quote, and how he governed Deira for seven years in, quote, very great prosperity and was himself beloved by all men, end quote, it seems like it wasn't to last. And that's because King Oswiu had other plans. Here's what Bede tells us. Oswi, who governed all of the northern part of the nation beyond the Humber, that is, the province of the Bernicians, could not live at peace with him. And so we're told by Bede that when the causes of their disagreement increased, they both raised an army against each other. However, Bede tells us that Oswin couldn't maintain a war against Bernicia because the Bernicians had far more forces than he did. And so, much like that famous scene in War Games, he decided that the only way to win was not to play. Yeah, I went old school with that one. So, we're told Oswald set aside all thoughts of battle and decided to live to fight another day. So at Wilfers Hill, which is about 10 miles northwest of Cataract Village, he disbanded his army and ordered all his men to return home. With his warbands dispersed, King Oswind and his one remaining thane, a man by the name of Taunt Hera, snuck away to the house of a local noble at Gilling, who was friendly to the king. His name was Hunwald. Obviously, we aren't given a huge amount of detail on this conflict. We aren't told about what the initial event was that started the fight, nor what their battle plans were. But it sounds like King Oswin of Deira recognized that he was on the weaker side of the conflict, and because of that, he was going to engage in guerrilla war. And he clearly wasn't trusting King Oswiu to seek some sort of heroic combat, since if he was, there would have been no need to sneak away. And by dispersing his troops back into Deira, and by deciding to reserve his strength, he was probably either planning to seek aid from other kingdoms, or he was planning on fighting an insurgency, sort of like how Chalin of Wessex had after he lost the throne, though hopefully with a better outcome. So there was King Oswin and Thane Taunt Hera, staying in secret with Hunwald while all of his support had left him. And unfortunately, Hunwald was not as loyal as King Oswin had hoped, because he soon got a hold of King Oswiu of Bernicia, 
and on August 20th, 651, Ethelwyn, the reeve of King Oswiu, burst into their hiding place and slew both King Oswin and Taunt Hera. The line of Deira, much like the line of Winterfell, was growing ever more thin. And the rule of Deira, curiously, didn't pass to King Oswiu, but instead, it went to Aethelwald, King Oswiu's nephew and the son of the old King Oswald of Northumbria. And if you think about it, that's a pretty savvy move. From what Bede tells us, everyone loved King Oswin of Deira. So killing him, and then telling everyone that he used to reign over, that you are now in charge, might have been a good way to shorten your own lifespan, but that didn't seem to be what King Oswiu had in mind. So if these Deirans loved piety so much, Oswiu would put the son of another beloved pious king on the throne. They all remembered Oswiu's brother, King Oswald, so they probably would accept Oswald's son ruling over them. And Oswiu could go back up north to Bernicia, which would be much safer for him, and his dynasty would still be secure in the south. So it's a pretty smart move. And the assumption is, among some scholars, that King Aethelwald of Deira was intended to serve as the sub-king under King Oswiu. And it might have worked out that way for a while. But this is the north, so you know that's not going to last. But before we move on, something else was happening in the north at just about the same time. Bede gives us an enormous amount of information in a short space of time. And all of this is supposed to have happened at right around the same time that King Oswin died. And that's actually pretty relevant to the story. So, according to Bede, while King Oswiu was fighting with and killing King Oswin of Deira, Penda of Mercia was in the north, ravaging Bernicia. Bede doesn't tell us what started the fight or what Penda was seeking to accomplish, though the timing seems definitely suspect, and it makes me think that maybe Penda wanted to keep Northumbria from reforming. But whatever the case, we're told that Penda was in Bernicia at about the same time that King Oswiu was distracted with a dynastic struggle into Era. And we're told that Penda and his Mercians, quote, ravaged the country, end quote, and even went to King Oswiu's capital of Bamber. However, Bamber was no joke, and King Penda was unable to take the city either by storm nor siege. So in response, the Mercians did what the big bad wolf should have done. They decided to burn the damn thing down. To hell with all that huffing and puffing. So, having already taken the surrounding villages, the Mercians knocked down many of the buildings, grabbed the beams, rafters, thatch, and anything else that was combustible, and piled it up next to the fortress town, and then set it ablaze. Meanwhile, Bishop Aidan was praying in his abbey at Lindisfarne, as he quite liked the solitude and silence of his home. However, Lindisfarne was only about two miles from Bamber, and so it wasn't long before the smoke was carried into his chamber. And then looking out, he saw the flames rising and being carried over the city walls by the wind. We're told that upon seeing this, Aidan raised his hands up to the skies, his eyes filled with tears, and he cried out, Behold, Lord, how great evil is wrought by Penda! Immediately, the winds changed, and suddenly the fire flew into the face of the Mercians, scorching some of them and causing the remainder to flee from fear. Bede tells us that they all feared the might of God. However, as they couldn't have possibly heard Aidan's prayers, I'm guessing that it wasn't the case, because even if this was divine intervention, how could they have possibly known it was? 
It sounds more like the Mercians, after repeated failures to take the city, just decide to pack it in. Or maybe, upon figuring out that Oswiu didn't in fact reform Northumbria, they decided that there was no further reason to fight. Whatever the case, we're told that Penda and his Mercians decide to call it a day and head back to Mercia, and, presumably, back to their meat halls. Afterwards, Bishop Aidan went to minister to the public. And that was probably a good idea. They had just been given the business by Penda and his Mercian warbands, and they might have needed some sort of comfort. So off he went. But he wasn't feeling too well. And as he was out there preaching and ministering, he became more and more ill. And then, just 11 days after the death of King Oswin and the worst bonfire in Penda's life, Bishop Aidan took a moment to rest against the wall of a local church. And he died. Now, according to Bede, the wall that Aiden was leaning on when he died became so strong that when Penda came back and attacked the village later on, the wall wouldn't burn, nor would it fall down. Thus, it became one of Aiden's miracles. But issues of spiritual mortar aside, Bishop Aiden really was an incredibly influential figure for the early Northern Church, and his loss would have been quite a blow. And he continued to be a key figure in the north going forward, and he even had his own cult. And his feast day, which is on August 31st, was even celebrated in the south. So yeah, this guy was a big deal. And actually, even later on, he was a personal hero to Bede, who loved Aiden so much that he forgave him for celebrating Easter on the wrong day. Seriously, that's something that Bede commented on, and then he magnanimously excused him for it. What a guy. Alright, so that was a lot of stuff happening really quickly. So what have we learned? Well, King Anna of East Anglia had grown in power, gathering enough influence to provide sanctuary to one of King Penda's enemies, and he even brought new regions of the Fens under his control. Further, he was a devout king converting both Penda's former brother-in-law, King Chenwal of Wessex, and also providing a great deal of support for the growing monastic community within his kingdom. However, it wasn't to last, and Penda ousted him from his throne. And some argue that King Anna fled to the Maganseta. And if that's the case, it really is interesting, since it implies that Penda didn't have control over the Maganseta, despite its proximity to Mercia and its possible family connection to the Mercian dynasty. But regardless, the Penda tally is now raised to four dead kings and two exiled kings. So he's doing pretty well so far. Meanwhile, King Chenwal, despite the danger that Penda posed, had retaken the throne of Wessex. And it looked like Penda was allowing it, since we don't hear of a Mercian attack. And Chenwal gave a huge land grant to a relative who was also the son of a prior ruler of the West Saxons. So perhaps he was looking to buy off a potential rival. Or maybe he was looking to further entrench his own dynasty. Then up in the north, you have King Oswiu reinforcing his line's claim onto Ira through marriage, as well as four children with Ainflaed, the princess of Deira. Based on this, it looks like Oswiu might have wanted to reform Northumbria, or at least have his kids do it. And we're told that war broke out between the two kingdoms, Bernicia and Deira, and that during the fighting, Penda and his Mercians invaded the north and ravaged Bernicia. And the timing makes me think that it might have been a reaction to Oswiu's southern ambitions. Then King Oswiu, through less than heroic means, managed to arrange for the murder of his chief rival, King Oswin of Deira, 
and the southern throne was now his. And he gave it to Aethelwald, King Oswiu's nephew, which might have alleviated any fears of Northumbria reforming. And shortly after that, following a barbecue that went horribly wrong, Penda and his warbands returned to Mercia. And then Bishop Aidan died. What a mess, right? But something I find interesting is that while Penda was certainly an effective war leader and wasn't afraid of fighting nor killing kings, it doesn't look like he was motivated by religion. From where I'm sitting, politics seemed to be the primary mover and shaker in his court. He wasn't specifically hunting Christian kings, since there were Christian kings that he just didn't mess with at all, and some of the kings that fell victim to his warbands were actually pagan. And he seemed completely willing to ally with Christians when their political goals aligned with his. So when I look at Penda, what strikes me is that he seemed to be focused upon diplomatic and dynastic concerns, and also on matters that threatened to destabilize the Mercian power base. Issues of faith didn't seem to really come into it for him. And I really like that, despite the fact that this is a time of enormous religious upheaval, and Penda is often referred to as the last great pagan Anglo-Saxon king, his religion doesn't seem to have played as big of a role as the title might make you think. He seems to have been a great warrior king, who just happened to be pagan. But I guess that doesn't sound good on a headline, so instead... We talk about him as the last great pagan Anglo-Saxon king. Alright, before I let you go, I was actually thinking the other day about how incredible it's been to watch our community grow from a small handful of my friends to over 7,000 people that we have now on Facebook alone. However, when it comes down to it, we're still a small, scrappy collective. And I think we could be much bigger. And honestly, the bigger we are the more fun the community will be, and also the more access we're going to be able to have to big-name experts and events. So let's get out there and find them. And to do so only takes a few minutes of our time. Each of us can post to our social networks a link to our favorite BHP episode. We can do a Friday follow on Twitter. We can invite our friends to join the BHP Facebook page. We can review the show on iTunes or Stitcher. There are all sorts of stuff we can do to grow our community. And the best part about all of this is that by doing this at the grassroots, through things like word of mouth and social networking, we're building something real. This community is all of ours. And in many ways, it reflects our personalities. We're building a circle of friends. So let's make it bigger. All right, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like to get involved, the best way to do so is to go over to thebritishhistorypodcast.com and check out all the different social networks and activities we've got over there. There's a bunch of stuff there, so just have a poke around, and I'm pretty sure you're going to find something you like. All right, thanks for listening. <laughs>